Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. Last time on the podcast during episode number five, we talked about the training and workup period prior to leaving for North Vietnam in 1966. A much more lighthearted conversation for sure. During this episode, we're going to pick up the story back in the prison they called the zoo. We'll discuss the East German film crew propaganda incident and my father's first meeting with Douglas Brent Hegdal III, an American hero and great friend to the Stratton family. The Doug Hegdal story is incredible. This podcast also includes a YouTube video that tells Doug's story. The work is nothing short of spectacular. The video was created by two 7th graders from Topeka, Kansas, Megan Christensen and Meredith Kuchura. Awesome job, ladies. If either of you plan to be down in Florida, please let me know. The Yankee Air Pirate and I would love to take you both to lunch. After you're finished listening to this episode, be sure to click on the details section under this podcast title and scroll down to the YouTube link. If you are listening on the Apple Podcast Player, just click it and play. Simple as that. If you are listening on another podcast player, you may have to copy and paste the link into YouTube. The mission of the Yankee Air Pirate podcast is to spread stories of American heroes. You can help us to achieve this goal in several ways. First, download, listen, and enjoy the episodes. Then, give the podcast a five-star review and leave a written review on the podcast site. Podcast players decide which podcast to recommend to listeners based on these reviews. Finally, forward the Yankee Air Pirate podcast to your family and friends and ask them to enjoy it and pass it on to others. If you have questions about an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want to say hello to the Yankee Air Pirate, you can contact us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's the Yankee Air Pirate, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Now, let's pick up the story again back in the zoo just after the bowing incident where my father was still sick and in very bad condition from the torture he had endured. All right, Dad, how's it going today? It is doing just well. Um, fantastic being back with you, and I appreciate you doing another one of these sessions with me today. I'm enjoying it. I am too. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm learning a lot because I've got to do a lot of reading and preparation for each one of these. So um, definitely eye-opening and enlightening. Uh, last time when you and I finished the conversation, you had... Um, just been drugged downtown. The bowing incident occurred. They brought you back to the zoo. Uh, they weren't too happy with you because you had not uh, bowed prettily. And uh, you you really were successful in pulling the wool over their eyes and getting a message out to all the world that the treatment of POWs in Vietnam was not good. People thought it was either torture or brainwashing or drugging. They really couldn't figure it out. But uh, mission accomplished on, on your part. 
uh, on that one. So after that incident, they brought you back to the zoo. Um, how much longer did they keep you at that prison camp until they moved you to another location? They kept me for about a month in the, in the zoo, and it was pretty well lost time to me. Yeah, you were telling me that before, that you don't remember a whole lot after the bowing incident for quite a while because you, you were sick and you, and you were really struggling can, uh, with infections in your arms and illness. Can, can you describe the situation and what things were like then? Well, I felt very much discouraged by the fact that I had been exploited and fallen into that trap. I still wasn't certain that I had achieved my objective of discrediting uh, the so-called confession, but more concern to me was my physical condition. My wrists were so damaged that I couldn't retract my hands. They were just hanging there, so I had to undertake uh, basically physical exercises trying to get myself back into shape so I could get my body working and then maybe the mind would follow getting a better body started out by doing push-ups from the wall, eventually got to the point where I could do push-ups from the floor. So things progressed along where I felt that I was now getting better physically, and I certainly was much better in terms of my mental uh, condition and my spirits. Okay, but still in a cell alone, still in solitary, correct? Well, yeah, I am, but uh, looking back on it, it's hard to remember that period of time. I know that uh, Moon Mullen, who was in my air wing, uh, he was VF-191, a crusader pilot. He had been captured just after me. He was somewhere in the zoo, and he seems to remember things differently uh, than than I do. But uh, to me, it's a blank. Yeah, and... So speaking of Moon Mullins, you you told me, you were telling me that you were able to make indirect contact uh, with Moon Mullins during this time period. Can you explain how that came about, how that happened? Well, they were at that time letting us go out to a cistern outside the cells and do our morning ablutions. They gave us a piece of soap, which we would share. So I was leaving messages there at the cistern. Moon had identified himself as being there by simply saying uh, Hudden Hudden, and that was sort of a joke call sign for his squadron, and put Moon next to it, drew a picture of a moon. So I knew that it was him. I was confident that it was him and hoped to establish some kind of contact with him. Okay. So uh, other than the messages left behind in, in the wash area like that, uh, writing little codes to each other in the moisture and with toothpaste, I think it was you told me, did uh, you ever get any kind of face-to-face or any eyeball uh, contact with Moon Mullins? You know, I frankly don't remember, but Moon Mullen remembers eyeball contact remembers uh, me in contact with him by tapping as well. Uh, additionally, with a couple of others, very frankly, I don't remember anything according to that. Okay. Because, yeah, you were, you were really sick and you were struggling just to survive at that point. Um, because of, 
uh, of the way you appeared back during the Boeing incident um, outside um, the rest of the world was really concerned what was going on with uh, with the prisoners in Vietnam and and you were describing to me that they started to really rough you up a little bit again because they wanted you to meet with peace delegations that came into Vietnam. Um, can you describe uh, what what they were looking for for that when the peace delegations met with you? What kind of uh, questions were they asking you? Well, first... Uh I think I use the term peace delegation, but actually that's a misnomer. These were groups of American traitors and communist sympathizers from around the world. They simply were attempting to eyeball me so they could say that they saw me and that I was not brainwashed or drugged. They had no interest in the prisoners or the prison situation. The Vietnamese wanted to keep keep total control over it. So they were permitted to ask, as I recall, five questions. The first question was, of course, how are you being treated? The Vietnamese wrote out the answers to the questions, and supposedly that was the only interchange that would take place between the visitors and the prisoners, which, of course, became funny because they, if they asked me what the weather was, then I'd come up with the answer to number four or the answer to number five, which was a total non sequitur, and gave them the illusion that I really lost my mind. Right. Um, did any of these people that came in in these delegations seem to be uh, genuinely concerned for you, your well-being, or any of the other prisoners, or did, did were they just trying to achieve their own personal agenda? Everyone that I saw and everyone I heard of had their own personal agenda, they had absolutely no sympathy. As Jane Fonda was quoted as saying, that if we were tortured, we got exactly what we deserved. Yeah, that, that's the way I remember it, too. That, that it was a very uh, a group of self-serving people coming in there. Um, one particular individual from that uh that group that came in that I've read about is a guy by the name of John uh, Takeman or Takeman, um, an MD from Sweden that came in and met with you late in the summer of 1967 uh, there in the zoo. And when you met with him, uh, you were the Vietnamese allowed you to give him some letters, uh, letters that you had written. Uh, for home, and he was allowed to leave uh, Vietnam with those letters to bring them home to our family. And uh, can you describe uh, what uh, you had been able to work into those letters? Well, Takeman, uh, which is a good name, he took the only voluntary letter that I made. I had been, if you can believe it, tortured and beat up to write letters to give these people as successive groups came through. But I had made up my mind that I would try to get names out. That was something that the guys from the Korean experience told us that became imperative. And I tried to do it with double talk. For example, I was advising in, one, in this letter to your mother to take 
particular care to the artful bower of roses that we had in the back of our house. Well, the name I was getting out was Art Buer, and Artful Bower was as close as I could get. And the other one was, I said when it came time to move, to make sure that the van that she took that was loaned to her needed to have a jack in it and make sure that that occurred. And, of course, Jack Van Loan was the name that I was trying to get out. And God love him, the naval intelligence people picked right up on it and picked those two names out. There were other names. I don't know if they were as successful as that, but I was proud of those two. Right, for sure. And and I do rem- remember back, um, Mom couldn't figure out what to make of the letters that you wrote back and that we received back home. Before we went overseas, your mother and I had a serious conversation about the possibility of death and capture, which makes sense in wartime. And one of the things we said was that I would be trying to get names out in letters if she ever got letters from me and that she should voluntarily uh, give them to the Navy because they would figure out some of the idiocy. But very frankly, I think your mother thought that I had lost my mind. Yeah, well, you were working hard um, to, to accomplish a mission, and, and you certainly did with that. So uh, you were telling me earlier, so there came a time now about four weeks after the bowing incident, um, one, one of the guards came into your room and indicated to you that, that you were to uh, get dressed, pack up your gear. Uh, can you explain to, to me how, how he came in and what kind of gestures he made and, and what happened next? When it came time to move, I had been uh, forcefully taught over in Wallow, the main prison, what the various signs the guards were making to me were. And the first sign would be the guy would make a cutting motion against each of your wrists, and that was a sign to get suited up and dressed into your pajamas, your striped prison uniform. And then he'd roll his hands like a basketball coach, give, uh, referee gives a sign that you're traveling when you're playing basketball. And that was a sign to roll up all your gear in your straw mat. So you'd pack your gear, roll it up in the mat. When that was completed, they would put a blindfold on you and you knew that you were either going to a different cell or maybe even a different prison. They never told you anything. Okay. In this case, um, they took you outside and they put you in a weapons carrier, and you're you're blindfolded, so you didn't know um, exactly who was next to you. But you were telling me before you sensed that there was another POW in the back of that truck with you, correct? There was another Caucasian in the truck with me. Yes, and two two guards in the back. Okay. And you're in the back of a weapons carrier with like a tarp or something pulled over. It had a canvas tarp on it. These these vehicles probably were maybe three-quarter ton vehicle, and they had no solid back. They were wooden sides, slat sides, and had a canvas top. The canvas was pulled over the top. We were seated. The two guys were by the tailgate, and we were sitting next to each other 
at the cab. I wasn't sure who it was or why the person was there. person was not making any signs, wasn't responding to me, uh, elbowing him in the ribs with the tap code, so I didn't have any idea who he was. Okay. So they... they they put the two of you in there, and, and, and it's evening or, or nighttime, right? It's dark it's outside? It's after dark. Indeed, it was. Okay. And and they drove you across town. You could hear traffic and whatnot while you're driving. You were telling me, and, and, and where did they end up taking you? We ended up in a soccer stadium. Apparently, it was filled with people. I had the ability, once again, was, my nose was still... Infected and ex- extra large, more than its usual size. So I was able to look along the side of my nose underneath the blindfold and toss back my head and catch a glimpse of things. But it, uh, we were driven into the middle of a soccer stadium that had floodlights on it. They pulled the tarp off the truck and the floodlights were turned on. And they apparently were chanting stirring up the crowd into anti-American, anti-air pirate type of propaganda. And at, very shortly, they appeared to lose control of the crowd. And they all came out onto the field and decided they wanted a piece of those of us that were in the truck, the Vietnamese as well as the Americans. Uh, fortunately for us, they didn't want to be a part of that, the guards, so they put the tarp back on top and drove through the people back out the gate, and we were back downtown driving around again. Okay. So the, the guards got, got you into a situation they, they couldn't control, so it, it certainly seemed like they were motivated to keep you from serious harm because they probably were responsible for you and would have people to answer to if, if things got too crazy there. They absolutely. We were more valuable alive at that point uh, as hostages uh, than we were dead. Okay. And so when you leave the soccer stadium now and, and you're driving through downtown, um, you end up in a new prison camp. They didn't take you back to the zoo. Where, where did they take you? They took us into a place that we ended up calling the plantation. It appeared to me later on that it was some kind of an old movie lot, probably a some sort of a high rollers residence back in the colonial days. I didn't see anything. It was still dark at night. They opened up a big uh, cell, probably 20 feet by maybe 10 feet, with one uh, bunk in it. it. Pushed me in by myself, took the blindfold off, threw my bundle in after me, and... That's where I ended up in solitary and isolated again. So this is th- this is now the third POW camp that you've been in since uh, your shoot down. Uh, Wallow uh, f- was first, then the zoo, now the plantation. And every camp they put you in, they put you in solitary confinement. Um, in retrospect, looking back on this now, do, do you know why they continued to put you in solitary every time? Because not all of the prisoners were kept in solitary at these camps. In the early years, by early years, I mean maybe 64 to about 69, if it was possible for them to keep you in solitary or isolation, 
Uh, they certainly tried to. The more senior in rank, the more effort they put into that. And the only reason that they put people together either was because they were too junior to be useful to them or that they simply ran out of room. Okay. Um so in the plantation now, in solitary confinement, and you had no one on either side of you at the, in a cell on either side of you. So communication with other prisoners is difficult at, at that point, I would imagine, yeah? Uh, the, the opportunity to communicate was non-existent in that case. That cell, the show cell, was the only one on that side of the quadrangle of the courtyard, and nobody walked by going anywhere. There were no walls to tap on. I could get uh, nothing outside the window uh, to show uh, my hand and flash the tap code, so I was effectively isolated. Okay. And so after being in the the plantation for a period of time, there there came a point where the Vietnamese brought an East German film crew into the camp. They let you out of your cell, and for the first time, uh, you were able to see uh, in person another American POW. Uh, can you explain, uh, first of all, who that other POW was, and what were they trying to get out of you with this East German film crew? The East Germans came in with a, a very elaborate film crew with the concept of making a POW propaganda film showing that we were a group of Yankee air pirates, that we were war criminals, that we were being, in spite of that, well-treated by a very benevolent communist nation. They entitled their production Pilots in Pajamas. In effect, <laughs> our, well, our mess dress uniform, in effect, looked like pajamas, so it wasn't too bad. So they had, at that time, probably maybe 20 prisoners that had been brought into the cell over a period of time, pardon me, into the prison over a period of time. I was still in solitary in my cell. So all of us were out at various points in this very large courtyard, assigned various tasks of weeding, sweeping, looking as if we were maintaining our quarters uh, shipshape. And closest to me, where I could actually talk to him, was another very young-looking guy, turned out to be Douglas Brent Hegdahl, a seaman apprentice that fell off the back of the Canberra. Later on, I found out he was the guy that was in the weapons carrier with me when we drove through the soccer stadium yeah that's and, and how you didn't find that out until later though when you had a opportunity to really sit down and compare notes correct it, about two or three weeks when we were in a cell together where we had chance to compare notes and find that out basically we were swapping uh, name our rank so we could determine who was senior and uh, making sure we had the rules of the camp, who was the senior ranking officer, the same things that were passed to me by Paul Galanti, I was passing on to uh, Doug Hegdahl. Uh, 
right? So there, there's actually a lot of pictures available from this East German film crew from, from the time they were in this camp. They took a lot of video footage. They took a lot of photographs, and a lot of them are up online that can be easily Googled. And I've seen pictures of the guards instructing you and pointing out different areas of the camp with uh, places to sweep, so on and so forth. Saw pictures of both you and Doug uh, sweeping, basically sweeping the dirt, uh, the dirt ground, if if I recall correctly, right? I was sweeping dirt from one place to another. The diggers yeah. and the fillers, Naval Academy midshipmen, uh, recognize that. <laughs> so, at the end uh, of this uh, propaganda or photo shoot, if you will, uh, call it what you will. Um, they allowed you and Doug to get into a shower together to clean yourself up after the hard day's work. And so there's video footage and pictures of you and Doug taking a shower. And um, it, it appeared that you and Doug really got your first opportunity to communicate and have a conversation with one another while that was happening. Well, the shower was the place where we swapped most of that essential information that I was mentioning. There, one of my favorite pictures out of that German film crew in Life magazine was a picture of Major Bai, who was the senior ranking officer in charge of all of the American prisoners. And he's pointing towards the showers, telling me to go down there and rendezvous at the end of the courtyard with Doug in a... Uh, walled-off space that had three shower heads in it. So we took a shower with a guard standing on top of a cistern watching us, sort of uh, in, enjoying the show. I guess he must have been bored stiff. Um, interestingly enough, those showers were torn down the next day, and no American ever saw another shower that I know of in the prison system. Wow. Well, so at the end of that day... Uh, after you uh, were were done filming and the East Germans were done with you, did they put you into a cell with someone now, or did they put you back into solitary again? Well, after that filming, that was early in July. After that filming, they popped me right back into solitary and isolation again. Uh, th things sort of settled down a little bit because the East Germans stayed a couple of more days filming other uh, prisoners in other locations within the camp. But uh, probably within a week, I was taken to a slightly smaller isolated cell back by the latrines behind the big house, the two-story administration building. And shortly thereafter, appearing in the doorway of the cell was Doug Hegdahl, and we were to room together apparently, just the two of us, once again, we were isolated in, in this gigantic room with a big sign on the wall saying, clean and neat, <laughs> and a bench underneath it. So we used to wake up and greet the guards in the morning when they came in, banging on the door. One day I'd be Mr. Clean and he'd be Mr. Neat, and then we'd swap. He'd be Mr. Neat and I'd be Mr. Clean. <laughs> All right, well, can, can you... Tell, tell us a little bit about um, when Doug was put into the same cell with you, how he initially reported to you uh, 
almost like he was reporting for duty in a very formal way. Well, as I recall it, the cell door opened. It was hotter than hell. We were in our skivvy shorts and T-shirts, and Doug is braced, and he was a tall man, and at that time he still had a lot of, a lot of weight on him. He was a big guy. And he's braced and sprouts off. My name is Seaman Apprentice Douglas Brent Hagdall, sir. What's yours? <laughs> and I'm sit- standing there. I'm ding-toed, knock-kneed, pot-bellied. I haven't shaved for almost 100 days. I smell like a billy goat. It's very hard to look distinguished like a lieutenant commander. So I just waved to him, and I said, Hi, I'm Dick Stratton off Tycho, and I'm a lieutenant commander. And his eyes went right in the back of his head. You know when you talk to a trooper, to a junior trooper, when you've stepped on it, and he gives you that look. I don't know how to exactly describe it, except his eyes go in the back of his head, and you can see him saying, Oh, cripes, another officer. But he came on in, and... Uh, he wanted to talk because he had been in isolation and gave me his whole story about falling off the ship and his capture and how they were trying to exploit him and what they were after. It was very profitable to learn that information. Yeah, and that's that's one thing for, for people that don't know the, the story on Doug Hegdahl. Um, first of all, there is some really good YouTube footage available on uh, that was done several years ago by uh, by a young schoolgirl that um, she did for a school project. She interviewed you, and uh, you and I watched that just recently within the last week or so. And I, she, there are some minor errors in there with with ranks and whatnot. But I thought that that young girl did a terrific job on that document. The uh, she did a wonderful job. She was. Uh from the Midwest and won a national prize, and she competed and came in second on in a national competition for producing a documentary. It was very well done and very accurate, portrayed Doug in a very true and very heroic manner. Yeah, I, I'm going to include the link uh, to that video in, in the uh, when, when we release this. Uh, next uh, podcast because pe- people I think would like to see that it, it's a, a very well done uh, story. Um, so can can you explain because people the Doug Hegdall story is so unique. You, you mentioned he fell off the back of a ship. He went up up on deck on his ship in the middle of the night, and he was knocked off the back of the ship from the repercussions of the guns that were shelling the coast in North Vietnam. And can you tell a story about how he floated for many, many hours in, in the middle of the water, was picked up by the fishing boat, and they actually thought he was a CIA spy sent over to gain intelligence. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, he was went out to get a breath of fresh air about three in the morning. His battle station was the aft ammunition handling room, which is in the bowels of the ship, so I don't blame him, but it's a non-repetitive exercise to go out on deck when eight-inch guns are firing. So um, he ends up in the water, no life raft, 
and the ship didn't know it lost anybody for two days. It, the love boat went steaming away, leaving him behind. And he had remembered from boots camp that he was supposed to take off his boots, I guess to keep them so he could put them back on when he stormed the beach or something. But he remembered the part about taking off his dungarees and buttoning up the fly and tying knots in the bottom of the trouser legs, popping it over his head and having a, a, basically a life vest for himself. Right. Well, it turns out that he had got the dungarees from the Lucky Bag, secondhand clothing bag, and it had holes in it, and it didn't <laughs> hold the air. And so he figured, well, that one didn't work. So he's sitting there now with in the waters, treading water with big white feet, probably 14 inches flat, long white feet from this big moose. And he's thinking sharks and his bare white butt hanging out. He decided to put on his trousers again. If you can picture this in the middle of the South China Sea, he's calmly putting on his trousers, buttoning up the fly and buckling the belt, and then decides maybe I better put on the shoes and swim around for a while and float around for a while. You know, nothing else to do. And eventually, come dawn, a Vietnamese fishing boat found him floating around, and they picked him up. Another sailor in distress, they didn't really care one way or the other, and hauled him back and realized they had a treasure. They had captured uh, some sort of a strange gringo and <laughs> turned, him, turned him over to the, to the military, and the military got a hold of him and couldn't figure out uh, what this infant was doing, rather large infant, but what he was doing there, and he ends up being tortured to admit that he's a CIA agent that entered the water in Coronado, California, to swim 10,000 miles across the Pacific and infiltrate North Vietnam. That's crazy. Well, they, 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 were, they were doing crazy things, let's face it. Uh, they told him, okay, they wanted him to write a confession or something, and he said he'd be delighted to write a confession. And they just about jumped through their own rear ends. Here is the first American they ever saw who volunteered to write something. And he says, Doug says to him, but small thing, he says, I can't read and write. <laughs> well, in their country, peasants couldn't read and write. So it was very credible. They assigned a Vietnamese to him to teach him penmanship, Palma method, I guess, and teach him English and spelling and grammar and taught him how to write. His learning curve went completely flat, if not negative. And so they wrote something for him, too. I felt very much uh, akin to him. Somebody wrote one for me. The, what they wrote for him was an apology for him personally on the USS Canberra shelling Ho Chi Minh's birthplace <laughs> which was on Highway 1 along the shore of North Vietnam, and had him sign it as Seaman Apprentice Douglas Brent Hegdahl, Captain, United States Navy, Commanding Officer, USS Canberra, which, of course, he happily signed. Oh, that's funny. Um, so with you and Doug now, um, both in the in this cell together, you, you were telling me you started to suspect... They were trying to soften you up for something. You kind of smelled a rat. What What did you figure they were trying to do at this point? We honestly didn't know why they had uh, put the two of us together until one day 
we're we're peering out underneath the door of our cell, and we see, which was unusual, a couple of uh, female uniformed Vietnamese come in, and then they they march out in in scrubs and masks to a small. Uh, meeting place next to our cell and I am called out first and go in and uh, these two women are there and I'm informed that I am to receive a physical examination now uh, I knew these people weren't doctors Uh, the sanitary uh, guard across her mouth was hanging around her chin someplace and it became obvious as she's giving me a pelvic exam and asking through the translator if I miss my wife that this was supposedly some sort of a seduction scene of some kind. And it comes, that dawns on me, this is some kind of a prelude to a, to a release plan or game. And sure enough, when they finished with me, they did the same bloody thing with Doug Hegdahl. So we sat down and compared notes and figured this has got to be part of a, some kind of an early release game that they're playing. So they're trying to soften you up to, to to try to make you accept an early release, which I know they had offered early releases to several other POWs, John McCain, the same thing, since they realized John McCain was the son of the of the Admiral for the Pacific Fleet, I believe it was at the time. They figured they would gain a lot of leverage by releasing John McCain, and John McCain also refused uh, that offer as well. Well, there was over the years, there was a series of uh, releases before the negotiated release, which were uh, was a violation of our policy of no early releases, and our own within the, the actual plantation prison itself if we had a choice, it would be the sick and wounded first, the juniors next, and the most senior person would be the right. last to leave. So uh, we had to figure out exactly how we could exploit this for our own benefit and at the same time make sure that we didn't get hooked into it. But it, that also planted a germ in my mind because— uh, one day, Doug had a strange sense of humor. Uh, well, it was different than mine. One day during the siesta period, I'm trying to sleep, and Doug is skipping around the room in a circle. And I can't sleep, and I asked him, I said, Doug, what are you doing? <laughs> and he looked at me like I was the village idiot, and he says, skipping, sir. He had figured out you can say anything to an officer you want as long as you say sir, right? <laughs> and resume skipping. So I said to him, I said, well, what are you doing that for? And he says, you got anything better to do, sir? <laughs> and, of course, I didn't. So he skipped away the, the period. But in addition to that, another one of the exchanges would became the germ of an idea in my mind. He said to me one time on boredom, do I know the Gettysburg Address? So we got a piece of brick, no paper or pencil around there at all, and wrote out on the floor of the cell, the Gettysburg Address. We got it right, and we laid it out and agreed. We finally had it correct. And then he says to me, he says, Dick, can you say the Gettysburg Address backwards? 
<laughs> well, that's right. Who the hell wants to say the Gettysburg Address backwards? I mean, you know, even Lincoln wouldn't want to do that. And I, I said, no, Doug, I can't. He says, well, I can. And I said, oh, come on, you can't do that. And he says, you track me on the floor. And so I'm tracking him on the floor, and he recites it backwards. Yeah, that that's amazing. And that's uh, I'm really glad you brought that story up because um, Doug was an incredible man, uh, and he's actually one of the, the few men, uh, in fact, the only one that I'm personally aware of, that came back early. Um, he was one of the early releases with honor because he was ordered to do so because he had this brilliant photographic memory. And could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, the the names that he was able to memorize and bring out. Well, that was, like I say, the germ of the idea was the Gettysburg Address thing because part of our daily task was to memorize all the names of anyone we came in contact with while we were in prison so that the Vietnamese communists could not hold anybody back uh, at release time as the Koreans had held people back. Right. So uh, we'd have to go through and had them memorized alphabetically and all that kind of stuff. Doug had some 156 names memorized by service, by rank, and alphabetically. And next to each name, he had sort of a... a uh, a memory uh, key of sorts, like a social security number or the number of kids or twins or something like that, to verify the quality of the name or the accuracy of the name he had, uh, which was important. For example, Rob Doremus was in there as Dormuff Doremus and Dormouse, but all three were from Columbus, Ohio, twin daughters, so it had to be one person. So this guy was a gold mine. Yeah, absolutely. An, an incredible guy. Um, and while the Vietnamese were going back and forth with, with both of you, with you uh, and with him, can you tell, tell some of the stories about, um, because they thought he was so stupid and very innocent and harmless, they let him out in the prison main yard area more than anyone else, and can you talk about some of the things that he would do to damage the uh, Vietnamese trucks and equipment? Well, I was with him in that cell probably for just a little over a month, but it got to observe him, it turns out, ended up being about almost two years, uh, watched him operate. They called him, and uh, this, is, this is not to demean him, but he was known amongst the Vietnamese. We all had nicknames in the Vietnamese. He was known as the incredibly stupid one. I found this out years later when I was being interrogated, associated with Doug Hegdahl, and this high roller came in, and he says, you know Heg. And I didn't know any Heg at all. And he says, right. you know the incredibly stupid one. <laughs> and and. and and, and I got a glimmer. I said, you mean Hegdahl? <laughs> and he says, yeah. yes. And Hegdahl by that time had been released. So right. here he is, the incredibly stupid one, because they thought he was so stupid having to teach him English, his own language. They'd let him go out in the during the siesta period and sweep around the yard. And I watched him go around. He's sweeping, and they're ignoring him. He back up to a, 
a Jeep or a truck or something, take the gas cap off the standpipe and reach down. A little bit of sand and gravel, he said to me one time. A little bit, sir, because it's going to be a long war. <laughs> and uh, dumped it in the gas tank. And uh, I don't know. I'm not a mechanic, but all I know is that uh, he dumped gas. Uh, he dumped stuff in the gas tanks, and those trucks had to be hauled out. In fact, the, one of them, the Jeep, had to be buried there. They couldn't even haul it out. Oh, that's fantastic. But that... the better still, for our point of view, that was fun. Better still was he was able to link us up with the deaf spelling code and the tap code by sweeping and using his hands. He could link up the isolated cell blocks and completed our internal intelligence communication net. He was a godsend. Right, yeah, ter terrific guy uh, that I've had the occasion to meet and be with many times. Um, so the camp commander, Major Boo, I think his name his name was correct. B U I. Uh, we pronounced it by by. His okay. nickname was the Cat. Okay, so the Cat um, was very insistent with you that they wanted you to take a early release and go home, and you refused, and. Um, they moved you out of the room with Doug and moved you back into solitary because you were not cooperating with them for that. And you were telling me earlier when, when that all occurred, they moved Doug into a room with a guy by the name of Jim Lowe, an Air Force pilot. Why did they put Doug in with, with that guy? Well, Doug was still considered to be a viable possibility for an early release. And this guy, uh, Lowe, uh, had never been tortured, never been threatened, and was volunteering to go home early, trying to convince the Vietnamese they should send a healthy, uninjured, undamaged, untortured American home. And I think that they were going to pair up Doug with, with Lowe, and eventually Lowe took uh, a position that Doug could have used to get out of there and get the names out. So uh, that that Air Force pilot did go on an early release? He then? did go on an early release. Okay, so they were trying to get Doug in with somebody that would be favorable to leave and to make it acceptable in, in, in Doug's mind because Doug didn't want to go. Doug wanted to stay with you guys and until everybody left. Doug wanted to stay. In fact, he had to be ordered— at that time, Hervey Stockman, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Air Force type, uh, was our senior ranking officer. He was isolated, but we were able to to get the concept of Doug going home early approved by him. And uh, he said, tell him to go. And I personally relayed the order to Doug that he was to go home early, and he told me he did not want to go home early that he wanted to be there with us. When you look at it from his point of view, once the torture stopped, he was having a ball. He was having the greatest time of his life. He was getting in their skivvy shorts every day. <laughs> yeah. And, and he had the respect of every one of the prisoners. And, and about what what year was that when they released Doug? Do you recall? Was it 69 or 69. He was released in 69. In 69. So, yeah, so... What I do remember about that is when Doug was released, um, he was really good to our family. He came back 
Um, I, I think he went to Bethesda for his recovery there. I think mom even went, we lived in California at the time. I think mom went out to Bethesda to see him there to, and got to talk to him, uh, and learn about your condition because she, the, the Naval intel, intelligence officer called mom and told her that a prisoner had been released that had been living with you. And then uh, later after that, uh, we went down to Southern California and we saw him at Uncle Charlie's house. He was working at the Sears School down in San Diego and he came up to Orange County and spent a couple of days with us talking to mom, um, got to meet all of us, uh, me and Mike and Charlie for the first time. And uh, he spent a lot of time with us describing what was going on over there. And it, it was... Uh, it was helpful to us, I do remember that, to know that he had been with you, uh, that although things had been really rough for you, uh, that you were okay, and it, it was rea very reassuring uh, to us as a family, I think. We had discussed before he had left uh, whether he should tell people what he knew he had first-hand information on all of our torture stories of the ones he came into contact with. Uh, he knew he'd tell the Navy about it, but should he tell any of the civilians about it? And we allowed, at least I personally told him, that he not only should he tell the Navy, but he should tell uh, my family all, all the bloody details. And your mother, it was a mixed blessing for your mother. It was hard for her to... To hear the details. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. But but I think uh, what happened because of that, that was a big impetus to start the POW MIA Wives Movement, which really, um, I, I think, had a lot of positive impact on the way that you all were treated back over in Vietnam. Well, the Johnson administration had put a muzzle on all of the wives of the POWs. First of all, tried to frighten them and say, if you say anything, you're going to cause trouble for your your husbands. You're going to cause them to be mistreated and tortured and killed. And the second thing was that uh, it was against uh, military policy. It was a military secret type of thing. And when the publicity came out with the bowing incident, uh, that changed everything because they couldn't hide it. Ambassador Harriman had to address it, and uh, Lyndon Johnson had to address it, and that just cut Mrs. Uh, Stockdale and all the wives loose. Right. Yeah. Well, this brings us to a point where um, I, I think it's good to close this story today. Uh, the Doug Hegdahl story was a terrific story, and I know a lot of people are going to be really interested in listening to this one. Uh, I appreciate you uh, doing this again with me. Uh, it's getting pretty close to uh, beer call for us. I'm ready for one if you are, sir. Yes, sir. I'm ready. Let's go get it. Let's go for it. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. If you have any questions about an episode or suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd just like to say hello to the Yankee Air Pirate, you can contact us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you. We appreciate all our listeners. 
Semper Fi.